0: Hey, subgenre fans, good day, good world. We're into season two of our podcast, and this time around, we're breaking and entering into the underappreciated subgenre of charming thief movies. For you, that means a whole new slew of full-length episodes are coming your way, including our just-released episode on the 1999 remake of The Thomas Crown Affair, starring Pierce Brosnan and Rene Russo. It also means brand new episodes of this, what we call The Pickup Shot. Okay, now, normally in the pickup shot, we try to offer you some of those extra moments that didn't quite make the final cut of the episode, but today we're going even further for you on The Thomas Crown Affair, with a look not at the film itself, but more specifically at the art, both stolen and otherwise presented in the film. So to do that, we've invited Art Curious podcast host and art expert Jennifer Dassel, uh, truth be told, my wife, into the studio to break it all down for us. So grab your monocles and pour some Amontillado. Today we're talking about the art of the Thomas Crown Affair. We are back with another pickup shot. Of course, this one on episode one of season two that just aired, The Thomas Crown Affair, the remake from 1999. So if you haven't listened to that episode yet, please put this on pause, go back, listen to episode one. A lot of this may not make sense if you do not, but if you have, welcome. We are recording this in the brand new booth here at Studio K. It is the inaugural recording in here, and it's kind of exciting to be doing this. And so joining me to keep kick off the new booth here, but more importantly, to lend some expertise that I do not have and will never have. I have invited into the studio for this pickup shot, the host of the Art Curious podcast, the author of Art Curious, the book. How do you like being here in the new studio?
1: I love it. Pretty awesome to have a devoted space just for recording both subgenre and Art Curious and whatever else comes our way. It's an upgrade from recording in our closet on my part,
0: which has been done for years and years.
1: Literal years. Literally, what, five and a half years that I've been doing Art Curious in the closet?
0: So now we actually have a much better outfitted closet to <laughs> record in here, which is fantastic. No, there there was a lot of work put into this, and so I just want to say upfront a big thank you, especially to Sandeep Bot and to the folks at Unrefined Design. So thank you very much for uh, working with us to put the new Studio K together.
1: Thank you, thank you.
0: So that being said, I have invited you here into the studio to expand on uh, what was talked about in episode one of season two on the 1999 remake of The Thomas Crown Affair with Pierce Brosnan, with Rene Russo, with our guest host, Charlotte Moore Lambert. You are not Charlotte Moore Lambert. You are Jennifer Dassel, and you are an art person. I wanted you in here partially just because I like having you around, and partially because this is a movie about art in large part. You know, it's a movie about fevery and other things too, but it's a movie about art, and so it's nice to have someone who has the multi-hyphenate of art historian an art curator, art podcast producer, art author, art tour lecturer. (laughs) That's going to help us, I think, in this discussion. So let's let's put that to use. huh?
1: I have to say that when you first invited me to be part of season two of Subgenre, that I really, really, really struggled because you presented me the theme of The Charming Gentleman Thief. And you said, here's the movies we're going to look at. Which one would you like to be a part of, if at all? And I really struggled because there is a movie that I ultimately decided I wanted to be a part of that's coming up later. Later in this season. Coming no soon.
0: No spoilers. Right.
1: But I felt compelled to be the person who comes and speaks about this one. And when I finally gave it up, I felt so guilty. But then I heard that Charlotte was super excited, mainly because she wanted to talk about Rene Russo's breasts. So very excited. We did.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Again, if you haven't listened to episode number one, there's a whole discussion. So please <laughs> go back and listen to it.
1: If no one can quite tell, let's just say that we have a special guest yeah. in the studio with us today. Yeah, Memer's the
0: cat is making herself known, so uh, she'll be in the background every so often. Yeah, yeah there she right goes there. by yeah. Memer's. So. What happens. You also have strong opinions about this movie. You have strong opinions uh, about movies in general. I like that that you're here, but really, honestly, and truly too, because this season, season two, about what we've been calling charming thieves, right? The gentleman thief trope. If memory serves me correct, you're the one that suggested that. Did That's I? why we're doing season two. What?
1: It was my idea? I think so. Well, good job me.
0: Good job you. I'm happy about that. you picked a good one, which uh, gives us a bunch of movies to talk about, gives us Thomas Crown first and foremost. I had seen Thomas Crown before uh, the the, the remake. Again, 99. We're not talking about the original from the 60s. We're talking about the remake. I had seen it before. You have seen it before. I know both of us have rewatched it recently. So, having rewatched it recently, just generally, what'd you think?
1: It is fun. I came away from this movie after watching it and just felt happy.
0: I think, overall, wonderful movie. It sounds like you think the same. I Memers think Memers likes it. Memers likes it. I think for a caper movie, it's top tier. I think mm-hmm. it gets the caper part right. Yeah. Lots of twists and turns, which is what you need in a great caper movie. And it gets the talent and the casting right on this.
1: Oh, you have Renée Russo and Pierce Brosnan really at the height of their beauty. Their chemistry is amazing. Oh, so, it is. just watching it for them alone and their interactions, top-notch, 100%.
0: Well, good. So we can kind of break the movie and and our discussion here maybe into two parts. And one of them is art theft because it is a movie about art theft and stealing pieces of art and all that kind of stuff. And the other is really about the art itself, which plays not even in the theft part of things, but just generally plays a large part in this film. Yeah, let's do it. For me, I am didn't start as an art person. I know what I know. You know, everybody knows this who's listened to the show, but I, I know what I know because you are around and I've learned by <laughs> osmosis. If you sat me down and said, which would you rather learn about art or thievery? I'm probably going to pick thievery. I
1: think that's fair. Though.
0: Uh-huh. And so art thievery, it just feels more exciting than, let's say, bank robberies or, or carjacking or anything. Mm-hmm. There's just something kind of interesting about it. And coming from the art world, just generally stealing paintings, let's say, stealing sculptures from art museums really happens, right?
1: It definitely does. It doesn't happen Often, But also at the same time, in the last few years, you've really seen, strangely enough, a kind of uptick, especially at the beginning of the pandemic. There was an increase while we were all stuck at home in art theft because you were having all these museums and galleries that were, for the most part, shuttered and maybe on just a very limited security staff, if at all. So, yeah, I mean, it does happen. When it happens, it tends to be major news because it is kind of a big deal.
0: People were stealing more during the pandemic?
1: Yes, believe it or not. Huh. Because, A, you didn't have throngs of people inside the Louvre, for example. But because you don't have a lot of people around, therefore, you didn't need as much security staff around, that all of a sudden leaves an opening potentially for people to come in and... And uh, perform the bad things.
0: Interesting. Yeah. I'm glad we're talking about art theft, too, because I know with your show, Art Curious, which if you have not listened to Art Curious, the podcast, please, please, please shut this show off now. Go listen to that show. It is hosted by Jennifer. It is produced by Jennifer. It is an amazing show about art history and all kind of the murder and mayhem and things in the back, which, by the way, also produced by Kaboomki. You cover thievery in a few different episodes, I think, over the 10 seasons that you have now done, and I think even starting with episode one, The Mona Lisa, right?
1: Oh, yeah. So the story of the 1911, or was it 1913? 1911, Theft of the Mona Lisa was actually what got me started doing Art Curious in the first place. So I love stories of art theft. And I know that It sort of feels weird as an art historian or a curator to admit that, but come on, the stories are just fun, mainly because I think they were first imprinted on my mind with movies exactly like this one. And I think part of the reason we're drawn to that is because it gives us this look behind the curtain at the art world, which a lot of people don't necessarily get to enjoy, you know? We see something on the wall at the museum and then we walk away, but being able to think about somebody actually holding a canvas and taking it out of the room, that's exciting. It changes the dynamic of how we experience art.
0: And I'm going to add one other thing to the end of that that just occurred to me while we were talking, which is the places where this art, whether it's owned by a rich person or whether it is my tax dollars or whether it is donated and it you know didn't cost anybody a thing, the places typically where the best of this art is displayed oftentimes resemble mansions, resemble uh, castles, temples, Mm -hmm. places where you would expect, you know, the dollars to be flowing, places that are other than where I would spend my day. And so I think that that also potentially plays into why it's so fun to watch art theft like this, why it feels like it isn't a crime against others, why, 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 why? Because this movie is supposedly taking place at the Met.
1: Well, actually... Supposedly. (laughs)
0: Supposedly was in there.
1: (laughs) When you're looking at the exterior shots of the museum, it is most definitely the Metropolitan Museum of Art, Mm -hmm. 100%. And even the crate that comes in at the very beginning that has the literal Trojan horse that the Eastern European Leaves break out of and create that whole diversion. It says shipping to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. The guards have an arm patch. Especially the guards who are down in that basement doing the unpacking mm-hmm. have shirts that say Metropolitan Museum of Art, but at no point in the script do they say the words The Met or name the museum at all. You only hear the characters calling it The Museum. uh, Yes, the well actually is because I want to say like, that work of art is not at The Met and blah blah blah, and I want to be that person. Sorry. But at the same time, the fact that they never actually identify it at The Met, it's like I almost wish that they had taken off those arm patches or had just made up a museum name because because some of the people, the producers who were making the film, actually say that they envisioned this as an imaginary museum in New York. So even though they're using the Met as kind of the basis, that has given them this idea where the collection of whatever this museum is can then be whatever it wants. So what you have is this amalgam of a bunch of different art museums and works that are today actually located in a bunch of different museums.
0: I want to finish off this discussion about the art theft piece of things. By tagging onto what you just said, which is, yes, we show the Met out front. Mm -hmm. From the filmmaking side of it, I think bits and pieces of it were filmed at the New York Public Library. Yes, they were. Um, And And on a soundstage. And the rest of it was a soundstage.
1: I can tell you exactly why. And that links back to the art theft part. It's because they did go to the Met and they asked permission to film inside the galleries. And that's something that a lot of museums do get requests for. And I believe the the first season of Lupin, the show that's on Netflix, the French show, I believe they actually were able to film in the Louvre, for example. But because this is a movie that specifically is about art theft and security at a museum, they could not. So they very politely, apparently declined the opportunity to do this because you don't want to showcase any situation that might show a faulty moment in which art is going to be imperiled. Either fictionally or literally imperiled by a movie crew, because as you well know, you've told me many times, crews aren't careful, (laughs) crews aren't delicate. You don't want to have a crew just barging into your art museum and your galleries because these are hugely expensive works of art that can be just damaged beyond belief by, you know, a rig coming down someone's elbow, punching through a painting, as we know, happens quite often, too often for my likes.
0: Okay, I'm going to speed us up a little bit just because I know we've got a lot to get to, but I'm going to kind of do a little lightning round at you to finish off this topic, and you can kind of hit me with a yes or no, or, or maybe so. When a painting is stolen, art recovery, the thing about the edges of the painting and being able to ID a particular painting like a fingerprint by its edges which get hidden behind the frame. Real, not real?
1: 100% real. Huh. Because there's not only that, it's just, it's the way that the surface of the painting was handled. So it's something that I talk a lot about in reference to the Mona Lisa and the theft is when you have a work of art that's oil paint, especially something that's 500, 600 years old, after a while, things like the varnish that might be on top of it, the nature of the paint itself, any other conservation acts or restorations that have occurred. All of those leave traces. And ideally, when you have a work of art that comes into a museum collection, you are going to hopefully have a team of people, curators, educators, conservators, if you have them on site, who will be looking at every inch and documenting every inch of a work of art just for posterity's sake, but also for the hopeful non-eventuality of something terrible happening to it that you can make sure that you're looking at the right work of art. The craft of a painting that can act a little bit like fingerprints. So if you have a copy of the Mona Lisa and it doesn't have the right surface cracking, then you know that it's not the right painting because it can be so specific.
0: Crack allure. Crack I- hey! Good job. So proud. Look at that. That was question number one. Question number two was, in part of the movie, they talk about, maybe it was Van Gogh, reusing their canvases, painting over Mm. images that were there, being able to see images under the surface image that's there, uh, which the man, I think, refers to as a ghost.
1: It was Monet. Yeah, 100%. For the most part, a lot of artists, when they're starting out thinking about Monet, thinking about Van Gogh, these were not rich people. These were poor people, for the most part, who were really struggling to make ends meet. And so if a painting wasn't working, if it wasn't successful, if they weren't happy with the direction they're going with it, you would just start over and repaint. That happens all the time. And there's also partially along the way sometimes with even a larger work of art where you'll see them struggle with ideas, the positioning of an arm, the positioning of a foot. Maybe there's an inclusion of a different character or an animal in a work of art and the artist looks at it and goes, you know what, I don't like that. It's much less expensive to just start repainting and adding paint on top of it than it is to buy a whole new panel or a whole new canvas art supplies not always cheap
0: if you did that in kind of the way they did in the movie and you paint it over with let's say watercolor on the front of it water flows down the canvas it it, (sighs) theoretically do you maintain the image underneath it pristine i I don't know if you know the answer (sighs) to that but i'm i'm curious that
1: freaks me out because from a curatorial and an art historical perspective i want nothing to touch the surface of a canvas. Whether or not an oil painting would actually kind of melt or be destroyed at all with water damage, like in that final scene where the paint, water paint mixes and mm-hmm. melts off, I don't know, man. I still feel like that would be really bad yeah, for it a seems painting. Bad. I don't think that's a good thing. <sighs>
0: okay. Sorry. Those are questions that have bugged me, and I'm glad I've got somebody who has <laughs> at least some background in this to be able to talk about it with me. So let's move on to the part which I'm sure you feel like you know more about. I know even less about the art itself that mm. appears in this movie. Now, normally when you watch you know, a movie or a TV show, sometimes the pieces of art or the books on the shelf or whatever – are made up they're props they're fake they're similar to but not the same as real things in this movie the pieces that are featured in the impressionist gallery specifically but potentially in other places you know they're not the real things i would have but they are representations of real paintings and yes. so i'm assuming that you recognized a few of them that we can talk about a lot okay so let's start with the big obvious one To me, which is not the painting that is stolen, the one that's the big obvious one to me, the one that seems to have the most impact in the movie, the one that seems to color the story and the characters the most is a painting by Rene Magritte. Yes. Called The Son of Man.
1: Yes, I love this painting. I love all Magritte, though. I'm kind of a Magritte nerd. I've got like four books on my bookshelf about him right now.
0: I can vouch for that.
1: <laughs> yeah, so I love this painting, but I mean, this painting is really symbolic of Thomas Crown, and that's very obvious because Rene Russo makes that point where she sees an image of the painting, I think, to advertise a uh, Magritte show coming up. And she says, oh, look, it's you, faceless businessman with a briefcase and a bowler hat. So that connection is made completely obvious. But then it's seen, you see it scattered around the movie. Of course, very famously, there is a copy of it, supposedly a copy, that is hanging in his office that then slides up in this incredible Bond link Mm -hmm. where he hides the Monet that he's stolen. It's like it pops up as this recurring symbol, which I have to say I super love because it comes up as a recurring symbol, a recurring character almost in Magritte's paintings. So it's almost Mm. like the movie is taking these tropes of Magritte's own work, of repetition, of dreams, of psychology, and uh, playing with it. It's actually very smartly done in
0: that way. I read this whole article about Thomas Crown kind of being this masterpiece of surrealism. Mm. And that is signposting that, hey, this guy sort of fits into that motif. Maybe this movie fits into that motif. There's puzzles within puzzles. There's Mm. things that are representative of things that aren't necessarily one-to-one matches with them. There's just like this whole odd universe existing behind the curtains.
1: Yes, I would have to say I'm kind of curious about the idea of psychology and of Faye Dunaway's character, which I love because I know that she was in the original movie, so it's just a wonderful tie. But Thomas Crown doesn't necessarily seem like someone who would be in therapy in 1999, like maybe now, because mental health is much less stigmatized than it was back then. I almost feel like that's a direct nod to surrealism, which was super, super into the realm of the unconscious and the way that our minds work and don't work. And
0: the dream world was huge in surrealism. That's interesting because I'm pretty sure in the Thomas Crown Full episode that we did talk about why that felt so odd. And I felt like it was almost in his head, Ooh, I, which, I is, which is why it feels like they're sort of in limbo, like they're in this sort of darkened limbo. You're you're not shown exactly where they are. He's talking with her. She's acting a little oddly here and there with her responses. That's an interesting thing to talk about because that painting to me is probably of all the ones that we see in the movie, the most memorable to me over my life, right? Who, Who doesn't like the guy with the apple head? And because that is so memorable And because the entire time that I've known that painting, you always want to peek behind the apple and you never can. Yes, um, It's just, it's a really strong symbol and I like the fact that they made so much use of it.
1: I do too. And I think, of course, most iconically, that almost final scene where we see this masterpiece that he does where he has the tons of stand-ins, people who are dressed identically to the man who is in that picture, the man in the bowler hat, all running around carrying suitcases so that you can't tell which one has the painting in it. I love that because this idea of copies of reproductions of looking at the same kind of symbols and objects over and over and over Magritte was so into that he painted apples over and over he painted men in the bowler hat this one in particular son of man is thought potentially to be a self-portrait which is also super interesting so it becomes a self-portrait for Magritte, and then also in the case of this movie it's a stand-in for thomas crown himself it's
0: very cool Thomas Crown steals a painting that is not by Magritte. He steals one by Claude Monet. And if I've got the name right, is it, you do the pronunciation.
1: San Giorgio Maggiore.
0: San Giorgio Maggiore at twilight. At
1: twilight. Sometimes you'll see it listed as Couchant, so at, at sunset at twilight.
0: What do we know about this painting?
1: Uh, Yes. So that scene where kind of towards the beginning of the movie, you have a school group who's coming in and you see a teacher who's talking to a group of super bored school kids about this, and they are obviously not listening. And she identifies this work as being the work that started the Impressionist movement, you know, like this is it. And of course, right away, I was like, well, that's wrong because— It was a Monet work, yes. It was not this one. It was Impression Sunrise. That's where we actually get the name Impressionism from the painting Impression Sunrise. So that gets my... uh tackles up a little bit. You can read more about it in Art Curious,
0: the book. <laughs> Available Chapter at your one. local bookstore.
1: <laughs> so, of course, right away I was like, oh, you guys, you can do a little bit of research. It'll take you five minutes. I mean, there was Google back then, I think.
0: Never let a good fact stand in the way of a good story.
1: So you are right. I, there's so much of this movie that's all about suspension of disbelief. And this is filmmaking. This is not a documentary about art, so I've gotta let things go. I've gotta relax. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: He chooses to steal this Monet as set up in the movie because it's worth, I think, the uh, they say a hundred million. million dollars, right? Mm-hmm. So, how accurate are we on that? Do you think, in terms of value? I-
1: have never had the chance to value a monet well if it's
0: a monet i'm i'm going yeah. to assume there's a dollar sign with a bunch of zeros after it yes that.
1: because monet is a hugely popular artist, and one of those money-making names. Name recognition alone brings people through a door of a museum.
0: Have you ever seen the original Son of Man?
1: I don't know that I have it. I actually don't know where it is. I have been in the presence of many Magritte paintings because I've been to Belgium, where they hold a lot of them. But, again, because Magritte repeated so many of the same symbols and topics, I've been in the presence of similar works of art.
0: And I'm looking up trying to figure out who owns the Son of Man currently. Um, (laughs) It looks like it was at SF MoMA in twenty. 2018. I think
1: they had a big Magritte exhibition that year.
0: Who knows? Probably some rich dude has it behind a wall in his study. Definitely. The San Giorgio Maggiore at Twilight. Anything yes. you've ever stood in front of, been able to see yourself?
1: Unfortunately, no. And I'm looking at a list of the number of works that are here in the movie. And a lot of them were actually, well, maybe not a lot, but a couple of them are in the UK. I have been to the UK, but sadly, I was a teenager at the time who did not care about art. So I missed every single art museum in London and also in Wales, which is where San Giorgio Maggiore is.
0: At the, what, the National Museum?
1: hmm in Cardiff.
0: In Cardiff. So Son of Man we've covered... San Giorgio Maggiore at Twilight, we have mm-hmm. covered. Mm-hmm. We may come back around and talk about those again mm-hmm. in a minute. Yes, please. The third one that seems to be mentioned relatively often is really only called by a nickname in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, Thomas Crown goes in. He's got his sandwich or whatever. He's sitting on the bench. He's he's looking <gasps> at, I know, we'll talk about the sandwich. Um, he's sitting in front of the beautiful San Giorgio painting, mm-hmm. but instead is paying attention to a different painting, which he just refers to as his hate. Stacks.
1: Say stacks. This is a Van Gogh work, and I've seen it referenced a couple of different ways. It's basically Van Gogh taking after a French painter named Millet, and it's either called morning rest or rest from work. So I've seen it listed as both. This one, I believe, is in the Musée d'Orsay in Paris. So this is one of those other moments where you're looking at the paintings on the walls and you're going, that is not at the Met, when you assume it's at the Met. But again, I feel like I can take a step back now, having learned from the director and the producers that they're imagining this as an imaginary museum that's filled with everything. And from what I heard, it was also being able to look at the works of art that they thought would signify most and show up well on screen. So for some reason, they thought that abstraction wasn't going to work. And so backing it up to pre-20th century art was going to be
0: most appealing.
1: And also, a lot of those works tend to be expensive, so it also works with the idea of an art heist. You want a big value painting.
0: And I'm glad, by the way, that you read the title of of this work to me, because when we were talking about it, I think, in episode one, I read it as rest from work after millet. Millet is a type of grain.
1: Well, that is true. I can totally see that. Uh, but I, just having my knowledge, Van Gogh did a bunch of works that were based on uh, Jean Millet's work. Millet, Millet. Millet? I think it's Millet.
0: I don't know. You're the French speaker. It's
1: very weird. Sometimes French, you say, like, ville, or sometimes you say vie and you have the L's, or like a... Help me, please. I'm French sticking people. with millet. That's fine.
0: That's fine. <laughs> Speaking of grains, the next painting I have on my list that apparently is in that room, which I did not necessarily catch, but maybe you did, is another Monet mm. called Wheatstacks?
1: Yeah, you'll see them called Wheatstacks or Haystacks. I mean, Monet for sure did a bunch of series of the same scenes, kind of like Magritte does, except that he is doing, in a lot of cases, the exact same location multiple times a day because he's looking at the sensation that life and shadow and shade and atmosphere, haze, clouds, all of that can... Change the look of a situation. That's kind of what Impressionism was all about for Monet specifically. I mean, for sure, when you're looking around those galleries, there's a bunch of different works of art. There's a really famous painting by Jacques Louis David that you see in one scene, a few Degas sculptures. There's Rodin sculptures in that same gallery. I mean, there's a hodgepodge for sure.
0: What's that sculpture in his foyer at his brownstone?
1: Can I say that I hate that sculpture? Oh, it's terrible, but what is it? It's awful. It's like an archaic Greek sculpture. I googled this because I was like, is there anything that looks exactly like it? Because it's a naked woman. She has that smile. That's a very well-known thing in Greek sculpture called archaic smile. You also see it sometimes in Etruscan works of art. So that's kind of like ancient Italian, kind of like proto-Rome stuff. I've never seen a nude female archaic sculpture like that. I think that was just made as a way to be titillating. And also it's like bright plaster. White. It's bad. That's <laughs> it's bad. all I can say about it. The
0: Wheatstacks painting, part of a series. There's mm-hmm. others floating around out there. I think that particular oh, yeah. one maybe is at the Getty. I think it's
1: at the Getty. Yeah, yeah, that one is in LA.
0: In Los Angeles, sure. And have you been to see any of the Wheatstacks? I have. You have?
1: They are beautiful. Have
0: you seen all of them?
1: Oh, I don't even know how many there are. They're probably scattered all around the world.
0: The next one is one that also gets its little moment of being featured mm. because it's what I'll call Catherine's painting. It's the yeah. one where he says, you know, if you were going to steal a painting in here, which one would you steal? The and, and she points to the, it's a Manet, right? Yeah. And it's, I don't think I can pronounce it Banks of the Seine at Argentoy. 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 Oh, man.
1: That was a suburb of Paris, really, at that point in the 1800s, late 19th century. And a lot of the Impressionists went there to paint.
0: Yeah. And so that's the one that she looks at and she goes, you know, out of all of them, this is the one that that I like the most. Do we know much about that painting?
1: I mean, I can tell you for sure. I love Manet. So I think that I am prone to agree with Catherine. I would probably choose that one just because I'm a fan of Manet's painting. He was one of those artists that sometimes gets called the father of modern art, him or sometimes Gustave Courbet, who was basically around at the same period. So sometimes Manet gets grouped into the Impressionists, but he was actually somebody who was active kind of right before the Impressionists came up. And they certainly didn't have the same attributes or stylistic tendencies. But he was definitely one of those guys that brought painting into the second half of the 19th century, where he's looking at these scenes of modern life, of everyday life. And so I really I really love that work. I think it's a really beautiful piece.
0: Yeah, I think you just answered the question I was going to ask you later, which was, of all the paintings in this film uh, that show up, which would be the one that you would steal?
1: I mean, the dogs playing poker.
0: Of course. For
1: sure. (laughs) Uh, Which one I would steal? Yeah. I would steal nothing because I am an innocent person who wants art to be enjoyed by all.
0: I think we have you on recording a few seconds ago saying (laughs) that you would steal the same one as uh, Uh, Catherine. Do Do you hold with that?
1: Okay, I'm sticking with the many.
0: The last two that I think are around, number one is a Pizarro. Yes. Um, the artist garden at, is it Aranyi?
1: Aranyi, yeah. That's the one that Thomas Crown, the, yeah, the loner to the mat as a replacement because it's the right size.
0: That's the one that's painted over the San Giorgio Maggiore at Twilight.
1: Correct. I Correct. see.
0: Is there any significance to painting a Pizarro over a Monet? I don't think nothing. so.
1: I mean, maybe there is. and
0: kind No of... rivalries, no nothing that would make that a No, they were friends.
1: Thing. They were friends. They were part of that same group of people who worked together to really kind of say, damn the man to the salon and the school of arts that was really controlling Paris in the 19th century in the art world. So they were all part of that. I think that was probably just a replacement as the right kind of work of art that would fit in the gallery. So it's like, here's a loner that generally works with that same time period that the Monet was based in, and that would fit stylistically.
0: And as Thomas Crown says, it fit the space perfectly.
1: Yes, which it did not, of course, because the frame keeps the sprinkler system from covering all the way. It allows for the painting to be dramatically washed off at the end, revealing the Monet.
0: Last note on that part, Mm -hmm. do we have any sense of whether in real life the Pizarro is the same size as the Monet that was stolen?
1: Ooh, I don't know. I mean, we can easily look that up. Or if they're significantly
0: different sizes. I have no idea. Maybe that's homework, everybody. Go home and Google (laughs) and see if those two are the same size. Last one that pops up, you hinted at it earlier, dogs playing poker. Uh, (laughs) Not the real dogs playing poker, I think, uh, by Coolidge, but something that's very similar. So is there a dogs playing poker in a museum anywhere?
1: I have to say I only know of these works. I know them by name, just kind of like how I know. Oh, gosh. Who's the painter of light? Kincaid. Kincaid. Like I know Thomas Kincaid. I used to probably say that I would group in Norman Rockwell, but I have come to respect Norman Rockwell so much more. But yeah, this is just like kind of pop art in some ways.
0: Is there a museum anywhere? And if there isn't, someone please. Is there a museum where I can go and see dogs playing poker? Velvet Elvis. Velvet Elvis, (laughs) right?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Any of those ones that you kind of see on the side of the road, is there a place where I can go and see those? This is a thing. Somebody make this happen. It feels very Vegas. Do it. Okay, good. I have a much better sense, I think, and hopefully everybody at home has a much better sense of the impressionist artworks that are in this film. And I'm sure that I'm missing talking about something there. What am I missing?
1: I mean, can we talk about the theft of the Monet at the very beginning? Yeah,
0: okay, let's talk about that. Okay,
1: so here's the deal. He comes into the gallery, Thomas Crown does, he takes the work of art off the wall, dislodges it from the frame and then folds it into his briefcase. There is a backing board on there, a way for the canvas to be adhered so it stays stiff. Oh, come on.
0: I can answer this.
1: I know this. It's actually on the DVD commentary. Yeah. I guess there was this larger scene that they were going to have to show the artwork to show that there were knives or blades within the briefcase to show that it would be cut out without damaging the painting, but that that had to be cut. Is that true?
0: If I understand it correctly, there was going to be or they filmed a scene to where Thomas Crown essentially has a small saw Mm -hmm. that saws through the backing, allowing the painting to fold in half without Uh theoretically damaging it. It can kind of just fold over itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and go into the briefcase. The director, John McTiernan, did not ultimately include that in because he thought that people might react badly to Thomas Crown, you know, seeming to damage a piece of art. And so they just cut around it. And so he's <laughs> able to take, you know, essentially a square peg and put it in a round hole. And, and then and,
1: reveal it later perfectly intact. That's right. No creases. I mean, ugh, it doesn't matter what you do. If you're going to move that canvas in any way, shape, or form, that canvas is going to crease, it's going to bend, it's going to flake. The paint is going to be damaged.
0: Well, if we think about it, though, I mean that's the least worst thing that happens to it, right? Like it gets painted over, it yeah. gets it gets sprinkled on. It's just it, a
1: painful scene. It for gets crushed art by doors
0: on each side.
1: Yes, but that frame is holding it so still, yeah. so it's fine.
0: Okay, now that we've gotten some better understanding of art theft, now that we've gotten much better understanding of the paintings that are in this movie, and thank you for that because that's a piece of this show that I am not able to do on my own. So I'm glad we're doing this now. But I can kind of open the floor to you and go, what other nits about the film? Because I had a long episode to go through my nits about this film. Both, you know, things I liked, things I thought were done really well, but also things I'm like, "Ah, come on, guys. You know, is there anything else in this film that stuck out to you and you went, yeah, that's wonderfully memorable or, yeah, that's memorable for the wrong reasons?
1: I mean, can we talk right away about that very first scene where we see Thomas Crown come in to look at his haystacks? Yes. And he's eating in the gallery. The sandwich. Yeah. No, no museum, it doesn't matter if it's an imaginary one or the Met, no museum in their right mind is letting you come in and eat in the galleries, especially this guard that comes in that he's so friendly with. I get that Thomas Crown is a very wealthy man, but no one has enough power to be able to sit there and eat.
0: You're telling me if Bill Gates, who donated half your museum, walks in, wants to sit down and eat a sandwich in front of the painting or paintings that he has given, the Impressionist wing, the Bill Gates Impressionist wing. Mm. That he can't come in and sit and eat his sandwich, you think?
1: I would not recommend it. And I doubt that any conservator or anyone else would recommend it either. Hopefully they wouldn't. It's not a good idea.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. It's not a good idea.
1: Also, uh, you know, once you start looking into the scene where you have the Eastern European thieves who come in to add the distraction so he can go in and steal the Monet, mm-hmm. it's in a gallery with a skylight. This is bad. <laughs> this is bad. And I know that museums do have skylights. I have worked in one that has skylights, but you have screen- over it because any sort of window or UV light that can come in through a skylight or into your space will damage a work of art over time. So you don't want that. This is not okay. This is very picky
0: thank you for the art conservator viewpoint on that, why you wouldn't want to have a skylight because it's going to ruin your painting. I just look at it and go, you got a bajillion dollars worth of painting in there and you're just putting glass where somebody can look down on it and pull a Mission Impossible and drop down through the glass. To me, that's the part that doesn't make sense.
1: (laughs) Well, exactly. That's true. You know, what's really funny is that I keep thinking about the fact that they did try to film this at the Met and the Met very obviously with great reason, politely declined, but that even though it's not identified Fight as The Met, I'm wondering if at any point further down the road, perhaps, if they will accept it in some way or embrace it in some way. The reason I'm saying this is because, just coincidentally, I finished reading from the mixed-up files of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler with our seven-year-old, mm-hmm. which also takes place at the Met, but very clearly stated so. But you have these kids who sleep over in the Met for a couple of weeks, maybe, constantly subverting the security guards who come in. This was written at a time before security cameras and all of that kind of stuff stuff. But eventually, about 30 years after the book was released, the Met had this whole magazine article that they released for their kids magazine that they used to put out that was all about the mixed up files of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler. And I keep wondering at some point, is there going to be this sort of embrace of Thomas Crown? My guess is probably not just because it's talking about works of art that aren't in their collection. So there's no one to one connection in that same way. But I think it's an interesting idea.
0: Last chance. Mm -hmm. Any other nits?
1: I have nits, but I would say that probably most interestingly to me is talking a little bit about the gallery that actually has these reproduction works of art that they supplied for the movie. Oh, okay. Because there's one gallery that they went to, and it's a gallery called the Trubetskoy Gallery. I think they used to have a New York outpost, which makes sense for this film specifically. But I know that they do definitely have their main atelier and main gallery in Paris. And they basically claim themselves as being the world's only reproduction gallery. So it specializes in, they call them identical copies of some of the world's most famous works of art. Forgeries. But these are legal master forgers. So it's really interesting because there's this hidden element. There's so much about this movie that has to do with art forgeries. You have characters that are closely aligned with Thomas Crown that are art forgers professionally. But then to create works of art like this for a movie like this or for a lot of other movies that feature serious works of art, Mm -hmm. you have to have people who are coming in and creating forgeries for you. So it's really interesting.
0: That is interesting that there are Mm -hmm. people who forge for a living legally. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to take us down a quick rabbit Are museums hiring professional forgers to forge their most expensive paintings so that they can put the forgeries on the wall and keep the others in a vault? You are going conspiracy
1: theory on me right now.
0: I am, but am I wrong?
1: Well, I mean, that is actually a question that I ask in that first episode of Art Curious because I have a professor who very famously and staunchly believes that the Mona Lisa on view at the Louvre is fake and she thinks that it's a forgery that's on the wall. And my question is. If it is, which I don't believe it is, I think that's the real deal, but I can't prove it. I would understand from a museum's point of view, because you have a work of art like that is the most iconic work of art in the world, literally priceless. So if you're going to do whatever you can to protect it, yes, you have your guards, you have your guardrails, you have your bulletproof glass, blah, blah, blah. But you could add that extra element of security in there by putting a fake work of art on the wall and thus always keeping your real deal secured safe down somewhere below some sort of amazing bulletproof basement thing. Um, Do I think that museums are hiring people to do that? I don't think so. But again, I don't know for sure. I doubt it, though. The good thing about the Trubetskoy Gallery is that they specifically mark everything as a forgery, and they have to work very closely, especially with works that aren't in copyright or public domain. You have to talk to the gallery or the artist representatives or an artist estate to be sure that you get permission to do that. This is way, way, way in the weeds, and artist copyright stuff is so complicated, but suffice to say, there are a lot of hoops that even master forgers have to go through to be able to very clearly mark their their works as forgeries.
0: Well, it reminds me of the P.T. Barnum label of a genuine fake.
1: Yes, yes, I love that. This is actually a topic I have done a little bit of research on because I find it personally fascinating.
0: It's very interesting, and I am certain that I could keep talking to you about art and movies and forgeries and Rene Russo and Pierce Brosnan, which we didn't even really get to talk about the handsomeness and the the romance and and everything yes, else. But
1: they're at their height of their beauty. It's like I always talk about the movie, I think it's 1980, somewhere in time. Not a great movie, but I love this movie. And it's the most beautiful that Christopher Reeve and Jane Seymour (laughs) ever are. That's how I feel about Pierce Brosnan and Rene Russo here. And also, it's kind of awesome. She was 46 when she made this movie. And she is at her sexiest. So go, Renee Russo.
0: This has been fun. I have enjoyed talking about all of this. I've enjoyed getting a knowledge download from you of stuff, you know, th- some things that I kinda knew by being around, but most things that I did not. So I appreciate you sitting down and doing all of this. As we hinted at the beginning of this episode, You're not off the hook. No. This this is extra content. Yes. I am having you in to sit down in this glorious new studio for an upcoming episode of Subgenre Season 2. No spoilers on what film that is going to be, but it is a family favorite.
1: Well, yeah. And plus, I'm also kind of super excited that I get to come back and not talk about art. It's just going to be fun to be able to talk about a movie that I like.
0: Yeah, me too. Let's do that. Okay, I'm ready. Okay, bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this Season 2 episode of The Pickup Shot from Subgenre. To ensure that you continue to receive our full-length episodes and more Pickup Shots, join our fans, the good world, by subscribing to Subgenre on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or pretty much anywhere else you choose to listen. Learn more about the show at our website, subgenrepodcast.com. And give us a shout out on Twitter or Instagram at subgenrepod. I'm Josh Dassel, and I'll see you on the next set. Kabunki.